This is a lecture that I give to 18, 19 year old students, so first year, and it's intended as a gateway drug to Marxism <laughs> or to correct some misunderstandings that float around in the public sphere. If you have a really deep knowledge of Marxism, you'll find that there are a few things that are subject to a lot of debate that I kind of gloss over, like the base superstructure distinction and <laughs> distinction. Um, but it's a good, I think, intro to some of the key aspects of Marxism and what I think it's all about, and I hope that you find it enjoyable. Seize control of this wonderful machinery that capitalism has created and use it for the purposes of people. So we, yes, capitalism is bad, but also capitalism is a necessary stepping stone to get us to a new world, to get us to where we need to be. Anyone else know anything about Marx and Engels? What pops into your head? Anybody know the words, keywords that are usually associated with Marx and Engels? Communism, good, excellent. That's a good segue. So Karl Marx supposedly advocated for something called communism. I remember when I was talking to one of my colleagues, I said, oh, I'm giving a lecture on Marx tomorrow. The first time that I gave this lecture a couple of years back. She said, oh, you should show them the Smurfs. I looked a bit confused. Why would I show them the Smurfs? So what do you think communism is? Do you think it's like Smurfs? Anybody watch Smurfs? Really old reference. Old, old even for me. I was too young even, uh, even when Smurfs were more my sister and brother who are older than me. But this like this wonderful little commune, I suppose, where they all kind of share in everything. And they'll do work for the good of the commune. Yeah. Or is it more like Star Trek? Anybody ever watch Star Trek? Yeah, show, show of hands who's watched Star Trek. Yeah? Star Trek, again, even too old for me. My dad used to watch Star Trek. And I kind of have vague memories of like, lying on the couch being forced to watch this extremely boring show. But I have come to love Star Trek. I want to get the idea across to you that actually Marx's idea of communism is more like Star Trek than Smurfs. Smurfs would be more like what he called primitive communism, kind of communism that existed a long time ago and like when people lived in uh, hunter-gatherer societies. And in those societies, people had a direct relationship with the world because if you went out into the world and you like, made a fire, you know, you interacted with the world and you killed an animal and you ate the animal. You as a human being and your creativity were one thing together. So you ate the products of your labor immediately. There's a direct, you had a direct relationship with the world. In capitalism, these things, the human being and our creativity, they're separated. Marx called this creativity our species being. The fact that we work on the world is our species being. We work on the world and in so doing, we work on ourselves and thus we become fundamentally different. That's what differentiates us from animals, the fact that we are creative and we create a world of culture by using tools and working, laboring on the world. So in primitive communism, we, our labor was direct, we worked on the world, we ate it. Within capitalism, these things are ripped apart, right? Show of hands, anybody ever worked in a factory? Anybody ever worked? Yeah, where did you work? At a pub. Great. Did you own the beer that you served? No, of course not. So you had an indirect relationship, right? So you made something, you poured a pint, and someone else made that beer somewhere down the line. We have no idea. You gave it to somebody else, and then you got money at the end of the day, or maybe two weeks later, and then you would go buy a beer <laughs> or buy whatever you want. 
So your relationship with the world is indirect. These two things, your creativity is separated from you. But what communism will do, Marx thinks, is bring those things back together. And that's his idea of the dialectic. Ah, the dialectic, which basically means that all history is like things that have been pried apart trying to come back together. And when they come back together, they create something new. So you think about, we talked about feudalism, right? The, the system that existed before communism. Society is pried apart into these different classes, right? And then the, but they're one thing, it's one society. And so they, they, they're trying to come back together and bang, when they come back together, it's revolution. And it creates something new, a new society. And then that cleaves into classes and boom, they come back together and create a new society. That's what's, that's what Marx is always talking about. He's always talking about these two things that get pried apart and then they keep trying to come back together. And it's the same thing with our creativity, our human creativity. In primitive communism, they were one thing. They get pried apart. And because of that, we have the possibility for it all to come back together in a much higher form. So yes, when you lived in a hunter-gatherer group, you would have had a direct relationship with the world. You would have seen immediately, oh, look at the wonders that I create. I have killed a beast. I'm going to go and paint a cave wall. I'm so proud that I've killed this beast, right? Now you come home from work and say, I have slayed a pint. No, you don't care. You're alienated from it. You're separate from it, right? But, but through that process of prying these things apart, we create enormously wonderful things. And now there's like a craft beer movement. Have you ever seen that craft beer movement? Where people like in their backyards basically make the, the technology got to be so complex and, so, and then so simple that people can have breweries basically in their backyard. And then they can, ah, look at this wonderful craft beer that I have created. You can make your own beer now, it's pretty easy. You're coming, you're getting a more direct relationship with the world again. And that's because these things were pried apart, transformed technologically, and then they come back together. One more thing, like music, for example. You know, it used to be people would play music and they had a, you know, you might even have made your own instruments. And you would feel a direct relationship with the people that you played music for. That still exists to a certain extent. Then it got pried apart, right? The music industry, high tech stuff. You have to go to a recording studio and create your music. Now, you can make music on your laptop. That laptop right there is more powerful than the recording studio, like hundreds of times more powerful than the recording studios of the 1970s, for example. And now people are making music in their bedrooms. You have a direct, and it's very hard to sell that music, by the way. It's that the money that's made is made by advertising. The music itself is basically free. That's what's happening. So that's by prying these things apart, they come back together again. And this is the process that's constantly happening within capitalism, and which is and is the source that of the optimism, and the mixture of optimism and pessimism that characterizes Marx's work. Yes, it's a sad thing that we're alienated from our creativity as human beings. That when you come home from work, work the thing, your species being, the thing that makes you human, is something you hate and you shun like the plague. That's sad. But eventually it will come back together again if, if we have a revolution, if we become conscious of what's happening and we seize control of these things, we do away with private property, Mark says. 
So it's more like Star Trek than Smurfs because it's the technology, if we can take control of it, that will ultimately free us. So that's my little introduction to Marxism. I might have confused you terribly, but I'm gonna go through this step by step. So my objectives are to describe Karl Marx's understanding of history. How does history work? What is capitalism? And how are we ultimately going to be freed, according to Marx? Okay, so who was Karl Marx? Uh, he was the father, he is the father of modern socialism, communism, and what we call conflict theory, right? These conflicts between things come together and create something new, conflict theory. He was born in 1818 in Western Germany. He was the son of a Jewish lawyer. And that's actually important, not for our purposes now, but just in terms of history, because the Nazis, you know, people forget, like, you know, that famous poem, first they came for the blah, 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 but I didn't care because I was not a blah, blah, blah. Does anybody know what the first line of that poem was? First they came for the communists, but I didn't care because I was not a communist. Um, so part of the Jewish conspiracy of the Nazis was about people like Karl Marx. He was a descendant of Jews, although he of course himself was not a practicing Jew. Um, it's an important thing to remember because you've probably heard about cultural Marxism. He spent a lot of time online cultural Marxism, it, it echoes a lot of this early kind of Nazi theory that there were these socialist Jews who can't be trusted and so on. Anyways, he moved to Paris and then he lived in exile in London. He lived most of his life in poverty. You can uh, go on tours in London now and see all the terrible places that Marx lived and all the times that he got evicted and was not able to pay his bills. Um, in his youth, he was a young Hegelian. Um, and that is a group of young people who drew, not young people, but a group of people, Hegel students, people who followed the ideas of Hegel. And one of the things that really excited the young Hegelians like Feuerbach, not just Marx, but lots of these young Hegelians, was this idea that history is, so Hegel was looking at all of world history and says, huh, that's interesting. It seems that History is becoming more rational. Societies are becoming more rational. They're more reasonable. They're being successfully ruled more by logic rather than superstition. How can we explain this? And Hegel says, ah, it must be God coming to know himself. <laughs> That's what Hegel says. It's a weird thing to say. But if you kind of think about it, I remember when I was a kid, I was like raised Catholic um, and I got grounded I did something really bad and I wasn't allowed to, it was the middle of the summer. I wasn't allowed to leave my room or use the phone or watch TV or anything. And I read all the books my, that were in my room. And then I was like, I had nothing left. So I picked up the Bible and I was like, well, and I started reading the Bible and I read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And I was like pretty amazed how wrathful God was. I was like, man, like God is like, wipe them out, like smite them all kind of thing. And then, and I was really shocked at how different the God of the Old Testament was to the God of the New Testament. God of the New Testament says, call me Abba, which is basically the, um, I think it's Aramaic word for daddy, like call me daddy. <laughs> you know, this like father figure so loving and so on. And my little brain is trying to figure this out. And I was like, you know, it must be when we die, all of our souls kind of go and join God. <laughs> And then all of the lessons that we learn on earth contribute to 
God's knowledge and he just becomes more rational, loving and empathetic over time. This is how I thought of it. That's basically Hegel's idea that he doesn't say all of our, well, all of our souls are becoming part of God, but in a way we're kind of like living through, but sort of God living through all of us and coming to understand itself through the, the development of reason. It's totally esoteric and crazy. If you try to read Hegel, it'll blow your mind. And yet there's something amazing within Hegel that was so revolutionary. This idea of unending improvement was totally new, right? He's writing like the 18th century. We still have feudalism pretty recently. The idea that the world would just continually improve? No, of course not. Everything stayed the same for like 500 years. So it's really radical. But what Marx did was he flipped Hegel around. He wasn't the first one to do this. Feuerbach was the first one to do this. But he flipped Hegel on his head. So no, it's not God coming to know himself. It's human beings coming to know themselves, becoming aware of the fact that all this time we have been God. We just projected all of our good qualities onto God. And you can see this in the idea of the dialectic. So the first thing is um, God creates man in his own image, right? That's what you learn in school. If you ever went to school, God creates man in his own image. Thesis, antithesis, no. Man created God in his own image. Man is just, God is just a reflection of man's culture at any given time. But then there's gonna be a synthesis. Man is God. We can bring life to other planets. Now, as a good Christian, I, I always feel like, oh, God, I'm going to get struck down for saying that. <laughs> but according to Marx, that's, event, it's not, we're not gods now. We're not fully free. But eventually we will be free. We will become God. That's the end point of the dialectic. Man, God created man in his own image? No. Man created God in his own image? No. We are gods. We are gods. We can destroy this planet or we can make it into heaven. That's us. That's, it's up to us. And it always has been, but we never had the economic base of society that would make that possible. We were always limited by our time period. We we're always like, it really did appear as though, you know, like if you look at ancient Greece, fate was so powerful that not even the gods could escape fate. Not even the gods could escape fate. Why? Because in the world of ancient Greece, you really were determined by fate. You really were like, you had earthquakes and volcanoes, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis. You were thrown about by forces beyond your will. And you, people didn't have the ability at that time to control those forces. So even when, it's when they projected their society onto God, there was, even the gods couldn't overcome fate. That's how powerful fate was. That's how powerful, um, how, how little power they felt in that world because they didn't have the technology yet to control it. Now we can imagine becoming gods, right? We're talking about the Anthropocene, the time period that's controlled by humans because we do have the technology to become gods, but we don't yet exist in a direct relationship with the world. We can't just act on the world. We can't just use our technologies, for example, to overcome climate change. Can't because we don't act directly on the world just yet. We have the technology right now to solve a lot of the problems that exist in the world. We have the technology to feed every single person on this planet and give them a good life. We have that technology. We have that level of production now. We have the technology to end climate change. 
We can do that, but we can't do that because we can't just direct the user technologies to act in the world. If something is going to happen, it has to be profitable. Within capitalism, we still we're not in a direct relationship with the world yet. We're not back at this. We're not here yet, <laughs> right? We're we're not back at these smurfs where we were at a direct relationship with the world. We're not at that at a higher form. We're still stuck, according to Marx and the Hegelians. Well, now we're into Marx. Um, we do not, we can't have that direct relationship yet. We're still stuck in a world that is defined by profit. So that's Karl Marx's, the, how he kind of comes from Hegel. One of these young Hegelians flips Hegel on his head, comes up with this wonderful optimistic vision of a fundamentally changed world. So Marx wrote voluminously throughout his life. Um, he wrote over a million pages. And this is part of the reason why Marxism is such a tough thing, because nobody can possibly read. Maybe it's possible, I don't know. But it'd be very, very difficult to read every single word the man wrote. It's a lot. <laughs> and some people develop different understandings based on different texts. So for me, my favorite texts are the German ideology, wage, labor, and capital, and capital. And you can tell the way that I think because I read these books and also the Grinders. But there are people who read the economic and philosophical manuscripts, which is what Marx wrote when he was very young. And they end up with a really weird idea of Marxism, in my opinion, where they're like anti-consumerist. They're like, you're consuming too much, you bad people. I, I think that that's a misreading of Marx's work because I read other things. So that this is kind of get a sense. I don't know if you're aware of this. But like, there's pretty much no sect, no political sect that hates its, each other as much as Marxists do. Like, you can't really say anything as a Marxist without 50 million Marxists jumping on you. It's a problem. But anyway, so he wrote voluminously throughout his life. Here are some of his major texts. Now, um, I should mention that this lecture is called Mark, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Friedrich Engels was Marx's companion throughout his life, his friend and collaborator. He supported Marx and his family through funds from his factory. And people go, oh, that's so bad. That's so hypocritical. Capitalism is so bad. Why, do you, uh, why did you get money from the factory? I hope that I put forward the idea to you that, that Marx did not just reject capitalism. He wasn't stupid. <laughs> he wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to go like shave my head and have a mohawk and dye it green or something and go live on a commune. No, it was about understanding capitalism and what it makes possible. It's like some, telling somebody in feudalism, like, oh, if you hate feudalism so much, like, why you work in the land then? Because well, I have to. I live in a feudal society and that's the way that it works. So he was supported by the funds from uh, 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 Engels factory. And the role of him, the role of Engels in Marx's work is subject to a lot of debate. A lot of people say that he had, um, it, like some of the key ideas of Marx were published after he died. And it was Engels who compiled his work from Marx's notebooks, which were completely illegible. Only Marx could read Marx's own handwriting. And Engels had to try to decipher what Marx was trying to say and compile it for a text and publish it. And so a lot of people say that Engels kind of messed with Marx's work and messed it up. But actually, um, throughout his life, it's throughout both of their lives, it's really difficult to know what was written by Marx and what was written by Engels. Because a lot of the time, Engels would fulfill contracts for Marx. Like Marx would be like, oh, I have to write for this hack newspaper. I've got a deadline on Tuesday. Can you do it for me? And Engels would be like, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of stuff with Marx's name on it actually was written by Engels. 
Uh, and of course, they collaborated on some of the most important works of Marxism now, um, including um, Wage, Labor, and Capital and the German ideology. These were very much written by the, by the two of them. But Engels is also an important sociologist or social, early social thinker in his own right. And some of the works that he produced early in his life um, remain classics. The Condition of the Working Class in England, published in 1845, when Engels was only 25 years old, is a classic. He collaborated, of course, on the Communist Manifesto. And after Marx's death in 1883, um, he also produced many more works. So looking at the condition of the working class in England, and one of Engels' most famous works, um, this book was written um, and compiled from parliamentary reports and inquiries about what it was like to live in the slums of Manchester in the 1830s. But what's really significant about this is that very unusually for its time, Engels actually went into those slums, went into those dark, dank basements to see for himself what the condition of the working class was. And in this way, it can be seen as an early example of ethnography, of observing people in their actual conditions instead of just writing about them. And in that sense, it's, it's, uh, it marks a significant moment in early social thought. But moving on to Marx and Engels, who, who are difficult to disentangle. Um, in terms of this kind of framing that I have given you about early social thought and the way that it brings together elements of romanticism and enlightenment, Marx is probably the quintessential figure of this entanglement. Um, he mixes trends from both romanticism and the enlightenment. He liked romantic critiques of capitalism for being humanizing, for having an emotional impact. He used a lot of romantic motifs in his own work. So there's lots of talk about monsters and like zombies, not literal zombies, but like the, the traditions of all the dead weighing on the brains of the living. So all this really beautiful flowery kind of romantic language in his own work. But, but, <laughs> Marx was actually an enormous critic of people like Thomas Carlyle, of what was called at the time utopian socialism, the kind of socialism that just rejected the present and wanted to erect an entirely new world. So we, you can't do that. You mustn't ever try to do that. You can't create like a blueprint for the perfect society and try to just smack it onto society, destroy everything and put something new up. That's not how it works. History moves by something existing, something opposing it. They come together and create something new that is higher and more developed than what than the elements that, that composed it that initially came together. You can't just destroy everything. Okay, so he he didn't romanticize the past. He didn't think we could go back to the past. Instead, we have to understand the present world and what it makes possible for the future. And in this sense, he's very much at the tail end of the enlightenment. Human beings, by using their reason, can understand the world and in so doing control it. We will become God. We will have an understanding of the world and therefore direct the world the way that we want to direct it. 
Um, so he warned against these kinds of criticisms that just reject things. Capitalism is bad. The bourgeoisie is bad. Greedy bankers are evil. These kinds of things, he hated it. He warned against that kind of criticism that knows how to judge and condemn the present, but not how to understand it. That kind of criticism that knows how to judge and condemn, but not to understand. We have to understand what the world is if we're going to figure out how to change it. It's, so he was not just rejecting capitalism. Oh, it's bad. We shouldn't have that. And that's really important because I'm going to show you in a second his understanding of capitalism. And you have to understand that he has this very strange way of dealing with capitalism where he's not saying, oh, this happens. So let's do away with it. It's bad. It's, well, what does this make possible? Yes, it is bad. What does it make possible in the future? So hopefully I'll be able to explain that relatively clearly. So in terms of uh, romanticism, he was very critical. He says about like returning to this golden past. Oh, there was this time in the past when everything was wonderful. He didn't want to go back to primitive communism. He wrote, it is as ridiculous to yearn for a return to that original fullness as it is to believe that with this complete emptiness, history has come to a standstill. So it's ridiculous to want to go back to the past, but it's also ridiculous to imagine that this is just it, the end of history. We're still moving forward. The bourgeois viewpoint has never advanced beyond this antithesis between itself and the romantic viewpoint, and therefore the latter will accompany it, accompany it as legitimate antithesis up to its blessed end. What does that mean? Basically, romantic critiques like those of, for example, Thomas Carlyle, that I introduced to you uh, last week or the week before, are forms of opposition to capitalism, criticisms of capitalism, that are actually perfectly tolerated within capitalism. They're fine. You can bitch and whine all you want about capitalism being alienating and, oh, I don't like going to work and, and it's bad and it makes people feel bad and it makes people too consumerist and it's bad for the world, bad, bad, bad. You can whine all you want, but it does nothing to the system. It does nothing at all to change things. And so it's actually tolerated. It's tolerated and it's even the legitimate opposition. It exists everywhere in society. You probably learned it in A-level. I guarantee it. I know I used to teach A-level sociology. I remember all over the walls, it was like Coca-Cola trying to sell you the wrong kind of happiness, right? And you're like, no, I'm not gonna buy Coca-Cola. I'll buy the off-brand. <laughs> still buying things, you can't escape it. So this is cap the, the romantic viewpoint is capitalism's legitimate opposition. It's totally tolerated. The rejection of capitalism is evil and all that. That it, that's not Marx's criticism. And in fact, he says that it's the kind of criticism that is totally tolerated within capitalism because it does absolutely nothing. And in fact, it helps. It helps a lot because I'll give you an example of romantic critique. Oh, everybody now has, I don't know, what's the hot thing everybody has? I don't know, iPhone. You know, the masses, where are we now, like 13? <laughs> I'm so out of the loop. Okay, everyone's got the iPhone 20, iPhone 20. <laughs> I, uh, that's like, everybody's got that. I want the new like Huawei, blah, blah, blah. Cause it's, it's for me and it's something special and it's different. And then everybody of course gets the new Huawei phone. You're like, oh, everybody has that. I want this new and different thing. And ironically, it's, keeps you searching for new experiences and new things. Once it becomes massified, you don't like it anymore, you want something new. 
It's an, an example of that kind of criticism. It doesn't really do anything. It's kind of a bad example because there are worse ones. I could give you another example. Environmentalism is a very important movement, but there are parts of it that are this kind of romantic critique, which is like, we should go back. We've gone too far. Industrial society has gone too far. You people, you want too much. And the capitalist is like, yeah, you people, you want too much. Ask for lower wages. Ask for lower wages. You shouldn't, it's wrong to want to have more. You should find meaning in yourself, not consumer objects, because I'm not gonna pay you to buy those consumer objects, am I? No. <laughs> so that's another example. Criticizing consumerism is wonderful for capitalists because they hate, they hate it when workers ask them to pay them more, right? When you go on strike, you're not like, Give me well-being Wednesdays. <laughs> I want to learn how to meditate. No, the boss wants you to do that. You want more money and power to you. <laughs> the romantic critique tricks you into thinking that wanting more is bad. So this is what, why Marx is really, really critical of it. And you click on that uh, slide, the source that comes from the uh, Grindrusa, which is Marx's notebooks. Okay, so... To sum up this critique of romanticism, you can kind of put it in the words of Vladimir Lenin. Vladimir Lenin was the leader of the Russian Revolution, based, of course, on Marx's ideas. And, of course, the Russian Revolution is hugely controversial in history, whether or not it was a good thing. But anyways, when um, Engels died, Lenin wrote an obituary for him. And he said, the services rendered by Marx and Engels to the working class may be expressed in a few words thus. They taught the working class to know itself and be conscious of itself. And they substituted science for dreams. And that's a really important insight, I think, that Lenin gives. And the whole quote is wonderful. The whole obituary is it's very short, but it's really wonderful. Because he talks about, like, at the time that they were living, at the time that Marx and Engels were living, there were, he says, there were dreamers, some of them geniuses who thought that all we had to do was stand in front of the ruling class and show them the injustices of the world. And then we would have peace and prosperity. But Marx and Engels said, no, you can't do that. You can't just go in front of power and say, hey, look at all this injustice. We know that. <laughs> There's nothing that, that just simply revealing injustice is not enough. You must understand why. You need science. You need to understand how the system works if you're going to solve these problems. So they substituted science for dreams. What is Marxism? What is Marxism? Well, very famously, Marx once heard of some quote unquote Marxists, I believe in France, who were supposedly using his ideas and formulating them into a political doctrine. And having read these ideas, Marx was disgusted and he said, I am not a Marxist. <laughs> if this is Marxism, then I am not a Marxist. And so the last little bit there, Marxism as a political doctrine, has been subject to enormous debate, even during Marx's lifetime. What should be done with his ideas remains really, really controversial. So Marxism is basically the intellectual tradition spanning 150 years from the time that Marx is writing until the present. And it involves three components. Marxism is a philosophy of history how societies come into being and how they change. Second, it is an explanation of how capitalism works, not how it should work, 
He doesn't think there's such a thing as a good functioning capitalism, as I'll show you. The way that it functions is fundamentally rotten to the core. There's no fixing it. So it's an understanding of what capitalism actually is. And this is what he spent his entire life on, trying to understand what capitalism actually is. And it's also three, a political doctrine, how we act on those ideas. Let's go through each of these in detail. I have said this a couple of times, but I want to just drive it home a disclaimer. Marx's work is a description of how capitalism and history actually work. No, he's saying this is how capitalism works. Workers don't own the means of production. What should happen is the political doctrine. And it's what we do on the basis of our understanding of what capitalism is. There's a very famous quote from the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, man makes history, but he does not make it in conditions of his own choosing. He does not cut it from the whole cloth, but from conditions made and transmitted from the past. We are born into a world that we did not create. We can't just simply create whatever we want. We have to use the materials that we have to hand in order to make the world. Okay, so that's why understanding capitalism is important. So that's the disclaimer, okay? So his description of how history actually works, not how it should work, this is how he thinks societies change and what creates society. So his philosophy of history is what we call a materialist philosophy of history. What this means is that the material world of stuff and things is what determines the ideas of the society, not the other way around. We don't create society because we have certain ideas in our heads. We have certain ideas in our heads because we have created society or we live in a society that has a particular structure. So societies are shaped by how they produce their means of subsistence. Means of subsistence are the things that people require to live at a particular time. For example, housing, clothing, transportation, etc. And this is not a basic needs approach. It's not saying like, oh, what like basic things? Oh, you don't really need the internet. No, you do. You really need these things because you live in a society that is structured in that way. Needs change. Needs change over time. Okay, but the means, so the means of subsistence is how we produce everything in the world that you need to live at a given time. Is that clear? So food, shelter, in our world, internet, leather jackets, <laughs> all of these things are our means of subsistence. And why does he think it's ultimately that stuff and how we produce it that determines the shape of society? Well, he says in the German ideology, you must be fed before you can philosophize. You must be fed before you can philosophize. You must meet your basic needs. You must eat, you must put a roof over your head before you can sit there and think about the finer points of religion, okay? So it's not ideas that make the world, he says, it is the stuff, how we make our stuff. That's what makes the world. And we can kind of bring this down to a rather crude distinction between the base and the superstructure. The base is how society produces its means of subsistence. How do we produce things we need to survive in capitalism? Where does our stuff come from? 
Do you make anything you need to survive in your home? Anybody here make their own clothes? Go hands. No? Where do you get your clothes? From shops. And where do they get the clothes? From factories, yeah. That's right. So our society is based on production, separated from us, in factories somewhere, usually. Okay? And the superstructure are all of the refers to all of the ideas and customs and laws that arise out of the base. Because we organize production in a particular way, we are going to have different ideas in our heads. Now, it's hard to understand when you actually live in a society because you're born into that world and it just seems normal and natural to you. But if you look at other societies, it's more obvious. So for example, in feudalism, you had um, the relationship between the serfs and the lords, and you had this kind of like middle bit of like knights and so on, and then you had the king at the top, right? That's your hierarchy within feudalism. There's your hierarchy within feudalism. Okay, so you've got your king at the top. Now, isn't it interesting that the ideas of the culture are pretty darn similar to that? So look at religion, religion of the time, during feudalism, feudalism like the, you had God on top, then you had the archangels, right? Who come and kind of try to do God's bidding. You know, that's kind of the people on the bottom who slave away. And that's God's will, because that's how he wants it to be, right? The way that the society was structured was reflected in the superstructure, in the ideas and the customs. When you had feudalism, it just seemed like it was in the nature of the peasant to be a peasant and in the nature of a king to be a king, because nothing ever changed. Because the economic base of society was such that it never changed. And that was the hierarchy. So our ideas about nature matched that hierarchy. We naturalized it. We said, that's the way God's will is. So our superstructure during feudalism matched the base, explained the base, said why the base was natural and normal and inevitable and God's will. It's the same thing for capitalism. So there we have our hierarchy within capitalism. Note the similarities between feudalism and capitalism. We still have that structure. The difference is people can move up and down in the structure. So base changes. We get different ideas in our heads. And we have different social structures in society. So we, we move from this social class system, lords, peasants, serfs, kings, and so on, to this one, working class, um, petty bourgeoisie, just like the, the pet small shop owners and that kind of thing. In our modern society, we people argue we now have a professional middle class. And then at the top, you've got the big bourgeoisie. And then you've got the church and religion and ideology and all of that stuff. But of course, Marx talks about how the church is kind of fading away. And our new ideology, the new thing that convinces us that this is all okay, and the superstructure is the law. The law, and this is in Marx's critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, which is where that famous quote is, religion is the opiate of the masses, the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, it is the opiate of the masses. He says, actually, religion is fading away. Religion is the superstructure of the old society. We have a new one. So remember, the superstructure explains the basis. That's the way it's got to be this way. And it's good and it's right and it's just. Well, in our society, we have the law. And the law says 
we live in a democratic society and it's good and it's right and it's just, right? Because all of you are equally prohibited from sleeping on a park bench. You're all equally prohibited. But is that meaningful to Jeff Bezos? No. You all have equal right to buy a mansion. Congratulations, you all have equal right to buy a five million pound house. Is that meaningful to you? No, but it appears as equal right. And the law enshrines that, which is good. It is good because in the past, in feudalism, the law said you couldn't even wear particular kinds of clothes. <laughs> and so we do have a certain amount of freedom now, but of course these freedoms are partial. So the law is part of that superstructure that justifies the basis. This is the way things are, this is the way they should always be. And it's good and it's right and it's just. If you're down there, well, you probably did something wrong. Okay. So two, so that's a philosophy of history and how things work and how societies change. You change the base, you change the superstructure. So Marx's work is an understanding of that base. It's attempt, an attempt to understand capitalism because it's only by changing that that it changed society. Marx famously said, communism can be understood thus, abolition of private property. Change the base, you change society. Change the base, you change society. So he spent his entire life studying what capitalism is, not what it should be, not how we should reform it, not maybe let's make it nicer, make some changes here and there. No, what it is to understand what it is becoming. So he doesn't blame greed. He doesn't blame individual mistakes, bad policies, or bad people. That's not what it is about. And in fact, if you start to do that, you start to have this sort of caricature of the greedy banker moving things around to his will, you're entering the realm of conspiracy. That is not Marxism. No, it's the system itself that pushes people to do things. So actually, he's very much in agreement with people like John Locke. He doesn't see the problems of capitalism as coming out of bad people and stupidity like Hobbes would, right? Hobbes would say, well, of course we've got a bad system because human beings are evil. And it's just a reflection of their evil. They're greedy and terrible. Marx would say, no. Human beings are rational. We are reasonable, we are logical. We encounter a problem and we try to solve it. And anyone would do these things in this position. In the position of the capitalist, you too would feel tempted to shoot workers when they go on strike. You too, and I know it's a terrifying thought, but you too would feel, you might not do it, you would feel that pressure because you'd be like, oh my God, I'm going to go out of business. You idiot workers, you can't have more. Don't you see? You can't have more. God, I wish you would just disappear and I'll hire different workers. You'd feel that pressure too. So it's about a rational subject, just like John Locke posits. It's people acting rationally on the world and doing what seems logical. And in the aggregate, that builds up to the horrors of capitalism. It is a system that pushes people's hands. It's not about greed. It's not about bad people. In fact, Marx has an incredible faith in humanity. Human beings are all we have. And it's a good thing because we have reason and we can take control. We can understand that we can overcome these issues and take control for the good of humanity. So what is capitalism? 
it's right around this point that I should give you a break, but I have been talking too much and I'm not at the point where I wanted to give you a break. So I'm going to finish off with what is capitalism and I'm going to give you a break. For Marx, capitalism is a social order in which one, things that people are, are need, their means of subsistence are produced for sale and profit. This means that although people, although capitalist businesses that have to produce things that people want and must consume at some point, that's not the ultimate purpose for producing things. We don't produce directly for human need. We produce for human needs that can pay. And I'll give you an example of that. At the moment, pharmaceutical companies, and you know, I hate this whole like big pharma thing, but the more that I've had to write about big pharma, the more I realize like, oh crap, like it is horrible. <laughs> it's really quite bad. So at the moment, pharmaceutical companies have put a ton of money into um, chronic illnesses, uh, treatments for chronic illnesses, and probably creating chronic illnesses that people never knew they had. It's all sorts of really weird things because it is so profitable to get people onto a drug that they have to take their whole life. That's where the money is. So getting people on drugs that have to take um, antidepressants, for example, most like the, the increase in antidepressants is people, once they're on it, they never come off. So psychiatric drugs, these are an area of enormous boom for the pharmaceutical industry, creating needs and needs especially that have to be met throughout the entire lifespan of the individual, very profitable. And they're not putting money into new antibiotic drugs. And we are facing a serious problem as humanity in terms of antibiotic resistance. Like we can see the return of things like the plague, <laughs> the bubonic plague, because we might run out of drugs. We might run out of antibiotics. And pharmaceutical companies are not investing in new antibiotics because where's the profit if you just take a drug once and you're cured? So it doesn't get produced. Incredible need, but it doesn't happen because it's not profitable. So we produce for sale and profit. We don't produce directly for human needs. We produce for needs that can pay. Okay, and the things that people need take the form of a commodity. The commodity is any useful item that is produced for sale. Everything, every single thing you touch right now, everything touching your body is a commodity. Everything you ate, everything you will eat, everything you do, <laughs> pretty much everything is a commodity within capitalism. You can't escape it. You can't escape it. Even if you, it's called a totality. You can't escape it. Even if you were like, oh, I hate capitalism. I'm out of here. Then you want to go live on like a commune in the middle of the desert. You'd still probably have to like, let's say you raise chickens. You'd probably just sell the extra eggs <laughs> to buy the things that you need, the extra things you can't produce. You'd probably have to buy the land that you created your commune on. Okay, so the commodity, uh, the, our means of subsistence take the form of commodities. Okay, two, production is based on wage labor. To survive, people must sell their ability to work in exchange for money so they can buy commodities. Those are the two fundamental characteristics of capitalism, according to Marx. Things that are produced are produced for sale, which means that our means of subsistence comes to us in the form of a commodity. And two, production is based on wage labor. We create commodities by paying people a wage. And to buy those commodities, you need a wage. Within capitalism, we produce for sale and profit. 
And this differs from previous societies. I feel the need to point out at this point that usually when I give this lecture, I also explain feudal society also had sale. There was some surplus, which would be sold in markets, um, and the feudal lords would also sell off some of their surplus, for instance, to buy commodities from the Orient and things like that. In addition, CMC is also the circuit that most people still live in today. While the capitalist lives in MCM, we live in CMC for the most part. We get a wage, we buy a commodity, and we consume it. And it ends there. Really good, because that stuff can eventually free us from toil. So if you live, for, if you live now in some places in the world, you'd spend most of your day just like pounding millet <laughs> to make flour and then like cooking it and walking with a barrel on your head or a bucket on your head with water in it. And you spend most of your time doing that. Now, you turn on the tap, the water comes out. You open up a bag, the food comes out. <laughs> and then you can go and think and create and get a degree in sociology. So it's, a, it's a quite a good thing. <laughs> it opened up a lot of surplus and that surplus meant freedom. Okay, I'm gonna have to give you a break now. I had hoped that I would be able to get through this, but I'm not going to. So when we come back, we're gonna talk about the second part of that, production based on wage labor.